Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Sound Medicine Podcast. I'm Barbara Lewis, and this is episode number six. Most of us say we support the idea of organ donation, but less than half of us actually have ticked that little box at the DMV that says we're willing to be an organ donor. So my first guest today started looking for a solution to that problem by asking a simple question. Why do we sign up to be a donor at the same place we buy license plates? If you Google hell in images, the first series of images that pop up is the DMV. Jenna Arnold is a co-founder, along with Greg Siegel, of Organize. On June 13th, between the time we spoke and when we posted this episode, she took part in a conference at the White House. It was aimed at propelling the organ donation process into the age of social media. And that conference announced a flurry of initiatives, all aimed at making it easier to donate an organ and easier to make sure people know you want to donate an organ as well. Jenna Arnold told me she is not a doctor. She is a problem solver. My co-founder's father waited five years to get a heart transplant. Uh, He suffered from cardiomyopathy. And throughout the process, Greg was often sitting at his bedside wondering what was taking so long. And this couldn't possibly make sense given the amount of people who are passing away every single year for there not to be hearts available. And so he kept asking questions to doctors and nurses and kept ending up in dead ends. After his father received a heart, and when I say at the 11th hour and 59th minute, I mean that in in a very literal, literal way, um, received a heart is doing incredibly well now um, from a 26-year-old donor from Boston. And uh, after the family recuperated both physically and mentally, he said, you know, the math just isn't adding up here. And the two of us crossed paths at a Clinton Foundation event. And um, my formal background is in foreign policy and education, and I'm just a serial problem solver in general. So if there's a problem that needs to be solved, I'm very curious about seeing if there's a way that I can lift up different corners of the rug to find the solution. And after a couple of months of exploring, exploring, we said, hey, wow, there's there's actually opportunities where we can move the needle on this issue, not just at some point in our lifetime, but in our very near lifetime. So we spent about two years traveling the country asking questions to anybody who would take a meeting with us from the janitorial staff at organ procurement organizations to transplant doctors to donor families and said, hey, what could we do to help improve the space? Because we're not doctors and we haven't been here for many, many years, but we could potentially bring an entrepreneurial mindset to the space. And and uh, so that was our initial ambition. There's 23 people who are dying every single day because they don't have access 
to life-saving organs, but yet when we look at the actual supply, we believe there is enough. There are enough people in the U.S. who are passing away in a medically qualified way where we could really flip supply and demand on a couple of key organs like hearts, lungs, pancreas. Kidneys is a totally different beast. There's about 120,000 people waiting for transplants. 90,000 of them are kidneys. So in order to solve that problem, we're really going to have to dive into living donation as well. But when we looked at the the landscape of challenges, we said, wow, this isn't a medical issue. Therefore, we don't need to have any sort of MD background. This is a business and distribution issue. So this is just about problem solving. And one of the key challenges that people kept saying was a bit of a broken record is the only place people can register to become organ donors is at the DMV and then clunky state-based registries. And, you know, the DMV is the worst point of sale. Who wants to talk about their end-of-life wishes while waiting in line there? In fact, if you Google hell in images, the first series of images that pop up is the DMV. So it's it's a unanimous feeling toward that specific location. Yes, you just want to get out eventually. Yeah, you get you get your number called and, and get out. You're right. Get in and out. There's no... There's no real opportunity to take that soul-searching moment of, oh, if I die, I want to help save somebody else's life. It's not the right environment for it. So when we first said, okay, well, let's just make it easier for people to register, the biggest challenge was there is 52 different registries in the U.S. that don't speak to each other. And that's because the system was designed in 1968 when the only government infrastructure in which all Americans had to funnel through at one point in their lives was the DMV. So it made sense then, but you know, Yale was just accepting their first female students then. We've come a very, very, very long way. So the idea that we can increase points of sale for people to have these conversations made a lot of sense. But we couldn't go to big third-party companies and say, hey, when people finish purchasing their pair of shoes or when they finish filling out their passport information or when they're registering for classes as an undergrad, let's also ask them if they want to be an organ donor because there was no way to take that one series of questions and then send it into 52 different state-based registries. So we spent the first nine months building a system that essentially allows people to register through organize.org and then send registrations down into each state-based registry. But then it's also housed in our registry. So if somebody is registered in the state of Idaho but passes away in the state of Utah, Utah can search our registry and also find the Idaho residence registration uh, in our database, which is doesn't seem to be rocket science, but it did take until 2015 for something like that to be built and launched. And how has it been? What's the response been so far? It's been pretty profound. I mean, there's the sort of qualitative response of people looking at us blankly saying, what do you mean this hasn't been updated in the past 50 years? And it took you two to, to, to solve the problem. And our response is, we know. And then there's the, the actual numbers. We've seen tens of thousands of registrations come through, and it's really fascinating. We're running a bunch of behavioral science studies to uh, to figure out the best way to ask you to become a registered organ donor compared to the best way to ask me to be an organ donor compared to the best way to ask a 37-year-old African-American man to be a, an organ donor, that there's so many different demographics, and this country does a great job of selling toothpaste to every single one of them, and it's a different sort of hook each time. So there's got to be best practices in, for, for every single demographic. So we're, f- 
we're learning fascinating, fascinating information. For example, we run a big study with Dan Ariely of Duke where we just switched a couple of words in a, in a sentence about the overall support Americans have toward organ donation. And there was a 17% increase in the quantity of people who are actually registering. And that's profound when you get into the millions of people. So tell me about that. What were the, what were the words? What was the switch? Sure. So, so there's a handful of facts that the organ donation community uses often. 23 people die a day. 120,000 people are on the waiting list. Um, and then there's two other sets of facts uh, that 95% of Americans are, su- are uh, support organ donation, but only 40% are registered. So what we did was we sent a bucket of emails to a portion of the list that says 95% of Americans support organ donation, but only 40% are registered. Please consider registering to become an organ donor. And then we sent the, the, the remainder emails to the rest of the list that just says 95% of Americans support organ donation. Please consider registering to become an organ donor. And I will quiz you to ask you which one you think uh, did better. I want to say the one that reminded us that only 40% take action. Interesting. It wasn't. It was the other one. And we can all draw our own hypothesis as to why just saying 95% of Americans support organ donation was more successful. Some people say, oh, well, it's because there's obviously a huge bucket of people in the U.S. who aren't registering for for a reason, even though I support it, I will, I'll just sit with them versus just the overall, oh, well, 95% of Americans support organ donation. Yeah, I'm one of those people too. Um, but who knows? There's still a lot of research and understanding as to why just flipping those those words or, or deleting a, a sentence or two um, converts a bunch of people. But, but those numbers are pretty substantial. So we had to build a, a central registry to make it easier for people to register and for that information to get to different states so that regardless of where you registered or where you pass away, your your wishes are honored. Okay, so what, what are these, the, the social declarations? I mean, how do, how do people make them and how does Organize use this information? Great question. So we had a very typical pivot um, in, in the life of a startup, though we didn't realize it was a pivot until we looked in the rearview mirror and we were like, oh, this is actually game changing, not only for the organization, but for the space. Uh, we met a woman in Utah whose son passed away tragically at the age of 16. And he had said to her a few weeks before he had uh, passed away that he wanted to be an organ donor. But he was under the age of 18, so he couldn't legally register in the state of Utah. So when uh, he passed away and, and the coordinators asked uh, his mother if she would provide her blessing so that they could procure organs from him, she humbly says, had her son not said that he wanted to be an organ donor, there's no way she would have given her blessing. Now, you know, long long story short, she is now spending Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving with uh, one of the women who received uh, his liver. Um, and so it's a really beautiful story. But we thought to ourselves, wait a second, most Americans in this country support organ donation but it's not recorded anywhere. There has to be an easier way for us to capture people's wishes around organ donations. So we obviously turn to the place where people 
seemed to vomit their ideas about everything, which was all online pro-social communities like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, et cetera, and said, well, if we can get people to say they want to be organ donors here and we can get that information to next of kin, we believe that we could ultimately end up converting more donors at time of death because if an individual isn't registered to become an organ donor, their next of kin have to provide their blessing and Oftentimes, if there's no sign or indication that their deceased loved one wanted to be an organ donor, they they err on the side of caution, and they say, you know what, I have no idea. I never had a conversation with them about this. They never checked the box at the DMV, so I'm gonna I'm gonna decline. And I mean, who has conversations with their families about whether or not they want to be organ donors? The amount of you know, tens of thousands of people I've come across in the couple of years that I've been working in the organ donation space, I want to say three to five people have said, oh, yeah, I definitely made sure to have that conversation with my wife. It's a rarity. So we said, okay, let's come up with easier ways for people to um, tell the world they want to be organ donors, and then we will take it upon ourselves to get that information to next of kin. So if you tweet uh, or if you post on Facebook or on Instagram, if you have a public account on Facebook and Instagram using the hashtag organ donor or I want to be an organ donor or hashtag donate my parts or anything along the organ donation space, we will capture that information, house it in our registry along with any formal registration, if a formal registration has been completed or not. And then at time of death, the organ procurement organizations around this country have access to our product, um, and they can query an individual's name and pull up any social, what we're calling social declarations. And and that's not binding like a registration would be, but it certainly gives the family guidance? Correct. But it's fascinating, and, and this is where, again, organizers just sitting in a space of, hey, how can we provide more information to the space? How can we build better technology that we can ultimately gift to the space? But we did pull the original authors out of retirement to um, gentlemen in their mid-80s who live in, in California who wrote the original Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, which is the law that dictates what happens to your body after you pass away. And uh, we said to them, so help us understand this specific clause where they wrote, any statement or symbol should be used or could be considered as consent for somebody's wishes around organ donation. We said, what, do you, what did you mean by statement or symbol? And they said, oh, well, at the time, answering machines were coming out. And we thought if you called your brother and left a a message on his answering machine that I want to be an organ donor, that that should be used as consent. And we said, okay, let's go look at this World Wide Web Facebook thing. What do you think about posts like this, posts like tweet, you know, and gave them a bunch of examples. And they said, yep, all those things are consent. So uh, we're sitting in a place of saying the organ donation community and sort of the lawyers in the space can determine whether or not a tweet is consent. But according to the original authors and the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, uh, a lot of people would probably suggest it as consent. But in terms of the American public and their comfort with being vocal about organ donation, we just say it's really just to help your next of kin determine what to do. Okay. Well, can we talk about um, 53? (laughs) Explain what that is. Sure. So 53 is the registry that we built 
um, which is essentially the country's first central registry. And we named it 53 because there's 52 other registries in the U.S., but this is the 53rd and the last one the country will ever need. So the idea is there are 52 different registries that were state-based, uh, including D.C. and Puerto Rico, and, and they weren't, uh, they don't interrupt operate. So we built a 53rd registry, which essentially hovers over all of the other registries. Early on in this interview, you were talking about, you know, the living donations is just a whole other thing. You know, the kidney donations, just a, just a whole other thing. Um, are you going to try to get in there or is this enough? I mean, just, it's considerable. It's more than considerable. It's just terrific what you're doing. Thank you. Um, we are we are doing work in the in the living donation space. We've partnered with Johns Hopkins to build a product known as Donor that uh, helps people who are waiting for living donations, livers or kidneys, uh, tell their story through Facebook and other social channels to help them find potential matches. Because if you need a kidney transplant, you're looking at at least a couple of years on the waiting list, if not more, um, in any state in the country. So your best odds are to find a living donor. And oftentimes it can be difficult for patients who are waiting for living transplants to find uh, living donors or to ask family and friends. It's just a very very difficult conversation socially, but if you see somebody post on Facebook, hey, I have a certain kind of diabetes, I need a kidney or off, you know, I'm going to pass away, it gives their community, their friends and family a little bit of a cushion to process this opportunity. And um, there's been a substantial increase, there's been a 5x increase in the amount of patients who are finding living matches using using donor and it's people who are raising their hand like you know ex-girlfriends and and previous elementary school teachers and people who they would never necessarily think should you know to call to to ask for a donation but um but it's working so that's one area we're also working on a product known as a living donor database so Oftentimes what happens if there's a local story about a kid who needs a kidney and, you know, 50 people raise their hand and say, yeah, of course I'd give it to this kid even though they don't know who he is. But only one one of those individuals is a match. What do you do with those other 49 people who have voluntarily raised their hand to be donors? So we're building a product that's helping transplant centers and transplant surgeons store names of people who are potentially interested in being living donors. And, and that's really exciting because we believe that most Americans are definitely willing to at least explore being living donors uh, if they understood the elements of it. And then there's one other thing I'll add, though I know our time is very limited, is uh, we're working with Al Roth, who's at Stanford, around living kidney chains. So the idea that an individual can set off a kidney chain that can help, you know, 6, 7, 10, 12 people receive kidneys. So the idea is that it's not just necessarily a one-for-one match between a donor and a recipient, but it could be an individual who's setting off a chain where 10, 15 people are getting kidneys. So that's where we're really going to take down big, large chunks in the in the kidney waiting list. Jenna, explain how that happens, the kidney chain. Sure. So if you need a kidney, and I'm willing to give it to you, but you and I aren't a match, and then there's a, a, a set of brothers, uh, and one needs a kidney and the other one's willing to give it to them, but they're not a match, but that brother is a match for you and I'm a match for the other brother who's waiting for a kidney, that we can essentially swap kidneys, and it's as if I made a donation to you and that brother made a donation to to the other brother. Because even if you're blood type B positive, as am I, 
it's really be positive 3.1467. You know, there's, there's ways for it to be like really, really, really perfect matches. So the idea is, is that somebody can come in and say, oh, I could give Barbara a kidney if her sister gives a kidney to this person and this person gives. And so it sets off this chain. I like to say it's just like playing a game of like Mahjong or Rummy 500. It's finding ways to, to connect different you know, suits of people. Um, and sometimes you just need that one ace to like slide in and then suddenly you can move all of the different cards around the board to get as many points as you can. I don't know if you're following. It's much easier to describe in person. I am. I absolutely am. That's a wonderful analogy. Jen Arnold, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for taking the time. Jen Arnold is the co-founder of Organize. At that White House conference we mentioned, Organized announced a goal of getting 1 million new organ donation registrations of social declarations by this fall. And just to repeat what Jenna explained, you can communicate your wish to be an organ donor by putting hashtag organ donor or hashtag organ donation on your Facebook page or on other social media. And those declarations will be stored in that national registry called 53, which every organ procurement organization around the country has access to. And Organize has pulled in a lot of other groups into its summer blitz, from the American Society of Transplant Surgeons to the website Funny or Die. You can find out more on this topic at Organize.org, as well as our Facebook page. Just search for Sound Medicine. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to speak with someone who has had that delicate conversation with family members about organ donation, oh, more than 500 times. Even families that I personally worked with that were not happy with the decision, and donation happened anyway, later on they go, wow, I'm so glad we did that. This is the Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Our Medicine Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Barbara Lewis. Now, imagine being a parent whose child has just suffered a traumatic brain injury. Now, what would it be like to have someone walk into the hospital room and start a conversation about donating his or her organs? My next guest is Patty Niles, and she started those conversations hundreds and hundreds of times. She's the CEO of the Southwest Transplant Alliance based in Dallas, Texas. You'll hear her refer to it as a OPO, that's Organ Procurement Organization. And that means that Patty works at both ends of the organ donation process, encouraging donations and then working with hospitals to find good matches to receive those donated organs. I've been doing this for 25 years 
And I remember that the question 25 years ago to families was a shock, like, what? Oh, I never thought about this. And it was an overwhelming time, of course, in the hour of your absolute worst day of your life. You have to have somebody ask you that question, would they want to be an organ donor? So it's not something you want to think about at that very moment. So since that time, there's been a lot of awareness through media, through you know, TV shows, and also through success stories. Transplants are so much more successful than they were 20 years ago. Someone who got a lung transplant 20 years ago only had a 50% chance of being alive within the first 12 months. So that has grown by so many successful stories. We have better immunosuppressive drugs, so there's better methodologies with the transplants, better drugs for the post-transplant, and better awareness. So all of those things make it much easier to happen today. Let's talk about that conversation. I mean, when potential donors reach the end of their life in, in the hospital, how does the transplant organization reach out to the family and initiate that conversation? The hospitals know when to call us um, when they are expecting to pronounce someone. Typically, organ donors are ones who have had a traumatic head injury or have had a stroke or some type of internal trauma to the brain where brain death is going to happen. So physicians kind of know when that starts happening. So they know when to call us. And then when they call us, we come in and do an evaluation to even see if that's an option for the family. So we've already done the assessment of can this person be an organ donor? I mean, is there any other rule out criteria like an infectious disease or maybe cancer that's going on that would prevent donation? So once we know that it looks like this person could, then we access that registry to see are they already registered to be an organ donor? And if they are, um, then we go out and talk to the families and kind of let them know if this person wanted to be an organ donor by their own designation. And we want to help you through this process, give you the information, and we stay with them the whole time. So we don't change that process with the family. We're there with them. Sometimes it's hard for them to understand just that the death has happened, let alone donation is going to happen. An important piece is that those conversations take place after the death has occurred. So we don't go in to approach the family unless the family wants that conversation beforehand. But our conversations happen after that patient has already been declared dead. So I'm wondering how that conversation goes and what you do if the family isn't really on board, even though the the donor had signed on the registry and had clearly intended to be a donor. Many times the families accept the person's designation to be an organ donor if they haven't and there was some family strife, you know, not, you know, you might have five family members and there might not be a unanimous decision or comfort level with donation. We work with them, and what we have found, and we're actually in the process of doing a study within Southwest Transplant Alliance, we're looking at the amount of time we spend with the family and how those outcomes differ because we found that if a family says, no, we don't want donation to happen when the person is designated, there's some difficulty in in that acceptance. We work with them and we continue to work with them, but we do honor that patient's wish to be an organ donor. So we just keep at it and we keep informing the family. And we found the longer we work with them, the more they come around. And I would say 95% of the time, the families come around and not only have come around, they're really happy that it happened. Do they have to come around? I mean, does it matter? No. 
doesn't, but it, it does because we, that's part of our responsibility as an OPO to work with those families and make sure we can reach a level of acceptance with them. And, and sometimes it doesn't happen at the hospital. It might be a week or two weeks later. You know, even the grieving process, there's a level of acceptance that happens. So they might not accept it when they leave the hospital, but we still continue to follow up with them after and send the material and follow up some phone calls. And most of the time, those families do come around. Even families that I've personally worked with that were not happy with the decision and donation happened anyway, later on they go, wow, I'm so glad we did that. I just didn't think it would make such an impact because when they start learning about the people that were affected and lives were saved, it's hard to say that wasn't a good thing. So we kind of heroize the donor in their decision, and that really helps the families along the way. So we consider ourselves a dual advocate. We're advocating on behalf of the person who's just died and wanted to be an organ donor, and we're advocating on behalf of the over 100,000 people who are waiting for a transplant. So it's kind of the dual advocacy. So we go through a lot of training to make those conversations happen. You know, it's a matter of being sensitive and aware and just um, being able to provide the information in, in the format they need it. Sometimes we draw pictures, sometimes we'll talk verbally, but, you know, a lot of times these families won't remember or even assimilate half of what you're saying because of their grief and shock state. Yeah, because this is a death that happened, it's trauma, you know, so it's a sudden, unexpected death. Um, so I was just, could you take me back to, like, your first conversation or your, your, your first one that, that just really um, you remember? was, uh, um, it's interesting because my first one that I remember was a difficult one because the family was angry. It was a 37-year-old mother of two, and at the bedside were the, um, the donor's two sisters and her mother. And um, the mother um, was having some chest pain, so she ended up in the emergency room and, and went home. So she asked that I finish up with the two sisters, and the two sisters wanted to donation to occur, but there was one, um, one of the two was really angry and said, you know, I want to tell you my sister is having an open casket funeral, and if there is anything wrong with her that I can see, I will come after you and find you, and it made me really nervous, because this was my first one, this was the first one I'd done alone, and this was like 25 years ago, and, you know, we went through the process, and donation happened, and there were, I think, three lives that were saved, and um, it was interesting because that family was one that I got really close with, and I ended up taking the sister and the mother to a memorial service in Washington, D.C., and I worked with them for several years. I even got the mother's story on videotape, and we used to use that in educational materials. They became our biggest advocates, and they called it Shelley's story. The young woman's name was Shelley. And that was just one case where we just turned that family around because that was back in the day they had to say yes, we couldn't just move forward. So having their buy-in really helped and ended up providing a level of solace for them. And the mother said, you know, there are days when my heart breaks over the loss of Shelly. She was so young. And the days that I feel like I can't go on, I slap this Band-Aid on, and it feels better. And I said, well, what's the Band-Aid? And she says, the letters that the recipients wrote. I pull those letters out, and I know that that Band-Aid that I slap on my heart is not going to stay on, but it stays on for that moment or that hour or that day. And knowing that the people she helped and that she was able to help someone during her exit of this life helps me. And I thought that was just such a beautiful story. 
one of the things that we do in the operating room before we start with the organ recoveries, we, we had this, this moment of silence where everyone stops what we're doing. You know, there's no longer that busyness of getting everything ready. It's this absolute moment of silence. We stop and we just have a moment for that donor. It's our heroizing moment. The surgeons, the nurses, we just have to have a moment and reflect on that person's life and what they're giving at that moment. I love those moments. Patty Niles is the president and CEO of the Southwest Transplant Alliance headquartered in Dallas, Texas. And that's it for this episode of the Sound Medicine Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please tell your friends. They can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. And leaving a review on iTunes helps other folks find us. And if you have a suggestion for a topic for a future episode, leave a message on our Facebook page. Just search for Sound Medicine. Our producer is Nora Hyatt with help from Eric Metcalf. Chris Lieber engineers the show. And we have support from the Indiana University School of Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. We'll all be back in a few weeks with another episode. In the meantime, take care. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.